Well, good morning. This week, we pick up the Gospel of John once again, <laughs> looking at the story of the woman at the well. The last few weeks, we've had a bit of a pause in our series on John, where we had a talk about IJM from Andy Bevan and the Thanksgiving service last week. In the first few weeks, we heard of Jesus, the true light, which illuminates the world as it really is, God as he really is, and ourselves as we really are. Toby spoke on Nicodemus, asking what kind of people are we? People who are moving towards the light, those who accept Jesus, or people who shrink away from it because we are so used to the darkness that it hurts our eyes. David Hart spoke on the end of John from that famous passage, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this week, that offer of eternal life is illuminated in this text. What we find here is that John picks up a lot of the themes that we have already seen in the first three chapters. Life, love, truth, grace, baptism, Jesus revealing the Father, water, spirit, eternal life. The list goes on and on. All these themes and ideas that have been swirling around in the narrative and discourse of the first three chapters find a new expression and a new home in the story of the woman at the well. It is a story of encounter. It's a story of love and the promise of life. You may be aware that the John Lewis Christmas ad for 2016 was just released. The 2011 one was my personal favorite, and we're going to watch it just now. I love that advert. For gifts you can't wait to give. The woman at the well is a story of a gift, a story of the giver and the effect that that gift has on the life of the recipient. Let's read John 4, 1 to 26 together. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus Tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God 
and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So at the beginning of this passage, the Pharisees start to get twitchy as Jesus is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Jesus becomes aware that this could become a source of tension and conflicts with the Pharisees. So to avoid confrontation, Jesus and his disciples leave Judea to head to Galilee. To do that, they had to go through Samaria. Since the exile, there had been centuries-long animosity, hatred, and fighting between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were totally separate, and they did not want to meet. John alludes to this in verse 9, where he says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Samaritans were believed to be impure, and the Jews did not want any contact with them. But the writer now sets up the stage for the encounter with the Samaritan woman in the middle of the midday heat. And so our first section is verse 7 to 15, the gift. When you know who the giver is, you can understand the magnitude of the gift. 
The verb didomai, give, is repeated seven times in this section. There is something about giving and gift in this section that is significant. A Samaritan woman comes to draw water at the well, and Jesus, weary and tired in the midday heat, asks her for a drink. John is clear to point out that the disciples had gone into town to buy food. It's his way of making clear that they are alone. In that culture, Jewish men would not have been allowed to be alone with a woman. If it was utterly unavoidable, they certainly would not have entered into conversation. The risk would have been too high. Risk of impurity, risk of gossip, and ultimately of being drawn into immorality. And yet, Jesus is talking to this woman, showing he has more concern for a person than propriety. And the woman wonders aloud why Jesus would ask her for water. Because the Samaritans were richly impure, the Jews would never have shared eating or drinking vessels with them. And yet that is what Jesus asks. In verse 10, Jesus answers her wondering, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God. Jesus' answer closed him in mystery, challenging the woman's assumptions that she knows who he is. Is he a Jew? Is that all he is? Living water is the phrase that was used in the first century for running water from a spring, stream, or river, in contrast to stagnant water that you would get from a pool or cistern. This living water that Jesus offers is life nourished by God. In Numbers 28 to 11, an incident which Jesus perhaps alludes to, water gushes out of the rock, supplying the Israelites with badly needed refreshment. Jesus is stretching out his hand to the woman, saying, Come, I can give you badly needed refreshment that you thirst for. I can give you the gift of living water. Verse 13 to 15 go on to elaborate about this living water. Jesus says, If you drink from this well, you'll be thirsty again. It is plain old, what we are used to, water. On the other hand, if you drink the water that Jesus offers, the water he offers as a gift to the woman, you will never thirst again. Not only will you not thirst, the water Jesus gives you will become a spring of water welling up inside of you to eternal life. His extraordinary promise redefines both water and thirst. The point is not that Jesus is offering H2O plus or some kind of magical potion that quenches thirst. But what he offers, this different kind of water, quenches a thirst that is far deeper than just our physical needs. It ministers to the very depths, to the very core of a person. Verse 14 to 15, the repeated reference to thirsty indicates that Jesus ministers to a keenly felt need. 
In Samaria's climate, they would have been keenly aware of water and the blessing it represents and the utter necessity of it. We see in Jesus here his concern to meet our most human longings and needs with the gift of water that will satisfy the deepest needs and longings of the world of each of us are met and satisfied in Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing. Until this section, the exchange has been focused between Jesus and the woman. And yet, in these statements, he generalizes. Whoever drinks. Jesus isn't merely addressing the woman. This promise moves beyond just her. And Jesus says, this means you. It is a promise of eternal life, living water for you, whoever and wherever you may be. The water welling up to eternal life is reminiscent of Isaiah's vision in 12.3, of people joyfully drawing water from wells of salvation in the last days. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can draw water from wells of salvation. We can have this living water. And we look forward to the day spoken of in Revelation 21.6. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This gift is utterly free for us. He gives us, without cost, the gift of eternal life that cost him his life. This is the promise of eternal life. We get to be with God, dwell in his presence, and be with him forever. That is what we were made for. That is what our souls long for. But today, he offers each of us that same opportunity to drink from the living water that he offers and receive eternal life. This is a message of salvation for the women and for us. If we accept Jesus, he will come in and not just satisfy us, but be our satisfaction. He will be our hope. He will be our peace. It is a gift, an invitation to life in all its fullness. A.W. Tozer said, Your poor heart, in which God put appreciation for everlastingness, will not take electronic gadgets in lieu of eternal life. Something inside of you is too big for that, too terrible, too wonderful. God has set everlastingness in your heart. All the things of this world are here but for a moment and then are gone. None can satisfy the longing for that eternal ragging in the soul of every man. Jesus offers the water that satisfies. Him and him alone can quench that thirst that longing for more that is placed within each of us. In your life right now, 
Do you know that Jesus is the one who satisfies? Have you, have I, become independent and self-dependent instead of coming to Jesus to satisfy us? Do you let him come to your life and minister to the needs, longings, and hopes that are in your heart? If you have never accepted the gift of eternal life that Jesus offers, it is an invitation for you today to come and receive it. So we see in the first section, the gift. And in verse 16 to 24, we see a life transformed. When the woman receives the gift, her life is transformed. Most gifts we receive are not particularly life-transforming, however wonderful they may be. But recently, I received a gift that was. I was given my engagement ring. The ring is a symbol of huge transformation that will happen as I become married and change my name, and as I commit my life to Alexander. And yet, the gift that this woman receives is infinitely greater and infinitely more transformational. Her past can be forgiven. Her future is the promise of eternal life, and her present is transformed. Intrigued by Jesus' offer of living water, the woman asks to have some, but she is in for a shock, as is everyone who starts to take Jesus seriously. He has living water to offer, but when you start to drink it, it will change every area of your life. Jesus' gift of living water begins to transform her life, and it will transform ours if we let him. If we take up the offer of running pure water, we have to get rid of the stale, moldy, stagnant water we've been living off for all this time. In the case of the woman, it was her married life, or rather her unmarried life. Jesus' response to her asking is, go, call your husband. Jesus sees straight to the heart of what is going on. Her response is, I have no husband. She is clinging on to her privacy and semblance of respectability. And Jesus commends her, saying, that's right, you have no husband. She has not one, but five, and the man she is now with is not any of those. That must have been terrifying for her. A stranger who turns up and says, I know. I know about all the husbands. I know about your darkest secrets. Her worst actions are exposed. You go to a well with people. You go with people for company and propriety. You go when it's cool because it's hard work. And yet she is at the well in the middle of the day, hiding. She is caught in a cycle of sin and shame. And Jesus' words cut straight through it gently. He reveals a life of immorality, of brokenness, perhaps of false beginnings and shattered hopes. 
He sees her situation for what it truly is. This is a woman who is hurt, lost and broken, who is known by the Jews as impure, to her community an outcast, and yet Jesus takes the time to be with her. A woman whose life is in tatters. He brings her story out into the light, where she will not be rejected or turned away. He brings out her story to say she is known and she is loved. Jesus takes the messy, broken fragments of her life. He offers her eternal life. And he takes the broken pieces of her marriages and he turns something good out of it. Because of it, the woman calls not her husband, but the whole community who come to faith. That is God's redemptive action at work. The gift that she has received becomes, in the words of John Lewis, the gift she can't wait to give. In verse 19, the woman goes for a distraction technique. Ah, he wants to talk about my past, my life. How can I change track? Ah, let's use religion. So she proclaims, Sir, I can see you are a prophet. And she tries to argue about the proper place of worship. Is it where the Samaritans say, Mount Gerizim, or is it Jewish Jerusalem? The dispute about worship has been raging for centuries when the Samaritan woman broaches it with Jesus. And yet what Jesus does is completely unexpected. He says neither. A time is coming. God is no longer to be found contained to a holy mountain or temple. The true living God is not contained by geography or architecture. With Jesus, worship has changed. Um, it marks a whole new era where worship will be in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying true worship isn't a matter of geographical location, physical posture or rituals. It is a matter of the heart. The location of worship is not nearly as important as the attitude. Holy mountains and holy buildings were never meant to be the focus. If they become substitute for what God intended, we get into trouble when we become more focused on how things are done or where things should be, and we start to slip into the idolatry. The focus was always meant to be about God. Worship is not tied to a holy place, but impacted by a holy God, who through the cross with Jesus inaugurates an era in which the Holy Spirit will come and dwell with his people. He is looking for those who are simply and honestly themselves, who come to Jesus as they are, allowing him to do the work of transformation. This is not about us coming to God to worship him, having made ourselves look presentable. 
but coming to him in our brokenness, in honesty and vulnerability, and allowing his spirit to come and change us. So the women might have tried to distract Jesus by talking about worship, but it comes full circle. Worship is about coming before God, the giver of life and allowing him to transform us as we spend time in the light of his presence. When you receive the gift of eternal life and encounter God in the present, your life begins to change. And finally, we see who the giver is. Jesus, the I am. The final two verses, verses 25 and 26, are powerful. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In a momentous self-disclosure, that is unique to any gospel narrative prior to Jesus' trials, he acknowledges that he is the Messiah. Jesus is the I am, God. The I am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. The I am who provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. The I am who is the beginning and the end, the author and foundation the God of the angel armies. That is the person standing before the woman. The Messiah, Jesus, God made flesh. The woman has a profound revelation of the living God. She began by calling him a Jew, not understanding who Jesus was. And as the light of recognition dawns, she moves from calling him Jew to sir to prophet, to the Messiah. She comes face to face with the I am himself. It is in the light of that true revelation that the woman in verse 39 to 42 runs and tells the community she was an outcast from about this offer of living water. The magnitude of the gift of living water this promise of eternal life is so great, she can't help but tell others about it. She leaves her bucket by the well to do so. Her understanding about what this gift truly is only makes sense when she knew who was offering it. Jesus, God himself. And with that revelation, her life is transformed. The community that once called her an outcast, accept her. When you encounter Jesus, when you encounter the I am, it changes everything. In a few minutes, we'll have prayer ministry, where members of our home groups will come, lay hands on you, and pray with you. This morning, perhaps you have never understood the gift that Jesus offers the offer of eternal life. Come forward if you would like to receive this gift and we would love to pray for you.
Perhaps there's an area of your life that is filled with moldy, stagnant water, that is filled with sin, and you want to invite God in and ask for forgiveness. Perhaps there's an area of your life that God has been highlighting to you this morning that you need to invite him into to work in and transform you. Come forward if that's you. Perhaps along the way you have lost sight of who Jesus is. If you want a fresh revelation of who he is, he would love to reveal more of himself to you this morning. If you are feeling broken or weary, if you feel like you have done too much to be accepted or loved by God, then the story of the woman at the well is for you. You are accepted and loved by Jesus. We would love to pray for you to know that truth this morning. Whatever your need is this morning, come forward and we all love to pray for you. Do you want to stand and I'll pray? Father God, we thank you that because of Jesus we get to encounter you, that you offer to us the gift of eternal life. Father God, would you come and would you meet with us now? Would you minister to our hearts? Would you highlight areas we need transformation? Father God, would you move in this place, we pray.